Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Andy Coulson, former editor of the News of the World, former director of communications at Number 10 Downing Street under David Cameron. We talk about both of those roles in detail, as you'll be able to tell from the length of this podcast. Andy is the latest in a long line of guests who I've kept longer than the promised hour. Always, of course, because it's my judgment at the hour mark that the conversation is so fascinating, it would be wrong to abruptly end it at that point, as long as the guest seems happy to continue. And I think you'll find this episode fascinating. Andy is uniquely placed to give his insight about the relationship between politicians and the media. We talk about working for Rupert Murdoch, working for David Cameron, the different cultures in both of those workplaces. And Andy has reflections on his time in both roles that may surprise you. I won't say any more, because I'm about to keep you for longer than the uh, than the usually promised hour. But every second of this really is fascinating. Now, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, with any thoughts and reflections about this or any other episode. As you may be aware, in recent episodes, I've been at least partially animated about people registering to vote by post. I can't believe as a country we're not really having a discussion about the elections in May during a pandemic and whether people are going to feel safe or not going into a polling station. Those elections are happening, so I'm keen that people don't lose their voice. I've registered to vote by post. Rachel Farrington got in touch. She's the founder of a website called Voting Counts, which is a brilliant website, getting people to... to getting people to register to vote at all. And there's a section on there about the history of elections, why it's important to vote. And there's a special dedicated postal vote section. You can visit that website, votingcounts.org.uk. You can follow it on Twitter, at votingcountsuk. And I've put a link in the blurb for where the show notes for where you can register to vote by post. What's even more impressive about this is that Rachel set that website up when she was 17, which is amazing. I thought joining the Labour Party at 15 was uh, slightly peculiar, but at the age of 17, setting up a website that helps get people voting is really, really impressive. So well done, Rachel. Thank you for getting in touch. And hopefully, if that just gets one more person to vote, what an amazing impact you've had. And I'm sure it will get even more people voting. Talking of uh, big impacts, let us know where you've seen politicians on holiday. A previous listener, child had seen Carwin Jones in Iceland. The country, not the supermarket, although both are anecdote worthy. Liam has got in touch. He said, talking of unusual encounters with politicians at the 2010 Lib Dem conference in Liverpool, in the evening, I nipped out, found a secluded spot and was having a cigarette. When Nick Clegg also popped out for a cigarette, I also had a nice 10 minute conversation with him. I was quite shocked, especially as I was only 20 years old at the time. It felt like I was in the twilight zone. Well, that must have been incredible. I mean, obviously, you're both at the Lib Dem conference, so there was an increased chance of seeing him. But still, he was deputy prime minister at the time. The last thing you think you're going to be doing as a 20 year old, even if you are at a Lib Dem party conference, is having a crafty cigarette with the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So that must have been highly surreal. So if you've ever seen a politician in an unusual place or bumped into them somewhere odd, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Also, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to this on. A lot of them now allow you to at least give a star rating, let alone a written review, and it just helps other people find uh, the podcast. So I'll be very grateful. Thank you. Right, on with this interview with Andy Coulson. This is absolutely, I mean, just every second of it is fascinating. We begin by talking about podcasts and what a former tabloid man's view of the world of podcasts is. It does sort of scratch the journalistic itch a bit. And obviously I've been out of journalism for a very long time now although I you know I write the odd article but you know in, in sort of professional terms 
Um, and I, um, you know, and the other, and the, other, the other reason for the other reason for it is, uh, is I think podcasting is is a very sort of reasonable medium. You know, you may be about to prove me wrong. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a very reasonable medium. You know, and you can have a long chat, and it's a, and it's a proper conversation. You know, and uh, and there aren't too many places to do that anymore. I think that I think that sort of the interview process has become more uh, more urgent, more immediate. You know, you might be a bit more negative about it and say that it's all become a bit too shouty. Uh, and podcasting, I think, is a, is a place where you can really kind of sit and have a listen and uh, and, and and have a proper conversation. I mean, this is Howard, uh, then editor of the News of the World, tabloid era Andy Coulson mm. feel about listening to Namby Pamby podcast exactly. Andy Coulson talk exactly. about long exactly. interviews and reasonable exactly. debate. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly right. I think my uh, I think my twenty year old self, maybe even my thirty year old self, Matt. Would have thought, good God, listen to him waffling on. <laughs> but it is, um, and that's the, you know, that's the that's the absolute truth of it. You know, I'm a very very different you know kind of person in that sense. Uh, you know, it's a lot fundamentally I'm the same person, but I mean, in, in terms of my attitude towards life, and certainly in terms of the things that I want to spend my life doing, I'm obviously very different in my fifties than I was in my thirties for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, which perhaps we'll discuss, but. You know, one of them is just the fact I'm older, right? That's what happens to us, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm definitely in the market for reasonable now, in a way that I in a way that I wasn't when I was a was a when I was a tabloid editor. You know, I've said actually that, that I think I'd be an utterly useless uh, tabloid editor now uh, because I, you know, to to be very good at that job. Um, and this is not to this is not to you know be disrespectful to those who are currently editing tabloid newspapers because maybe it was just me but you've got to spend you know a lot of your time between two points really you know at, at angry uh, or you've got to be you know 100% excited and energized about uh, whatever whatever it is that you're kind of focusing on you kind of swing between those two places, and I just—that's just not where I am anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in the in, in the middle. You know, that kind of black and white. And I think life is becoming public life. I think is becoming far more black and white. When the reality of life, I think, is that most things are in the grey, one shade or other. And uh, and I'm for that reason, I think I'd be I think I'd be rubbish at it now. That's a, a perspective probably forged by severe personal experience on on your part um I, I wonder just reflecting on tabloid culture about that black and white mm. about whether you know the role that tabloids have played in our public life and our debate you know we're sitting here on a podcast talking about how great it is to have a reasonable conversation there was a period of time i mean the tabloids still exist in a world which is sensational gossipy um morally judging of other people's lives and uh, and decisions um there'd have been a period of time where actually you'd have happily kind of judged others painted things as black and white oh definitely yeah without any shadow of a doubt i mean i um yeah i think that's i think that's entire i think that's entirely fair you know and to try and to try and pick that apart now um you know which i've you know i've done a, i've done a bit of uh, during the course of the last, during the course of the last sort of ten years or more, I think you know I I I I, 
I started in journalism at a really interesting time. Um, you know, I, I didn't go to university. I went straight into my local paper when I was when I was eighteen. Then onto the Sun once I once I got qualified, once I got my um, my indentures, uh, and then uh, and then I was you know I was working at the Sun in you know the late eighties, and that was you know on one level uh, a sort of high octane, incredibly exciting, actually pretty rewarding for a you know kid in his twenties. You know, I was flying around the world chasing celebrities, you know, interviewing celebrities. Uh, you know, eventually I ended up with a, with a, with a, with a you know, with the showbiz cult. It was an, inc an incredibly exciting place to be, but the workplace of the late 80s, early 90s, and indeed the mindset, I would say, of the, of the paper, where it saw itself in the world, is very different to where we are now. And, you know, I think that uh, the judgment piece uh, that's more that more comes into play really when you you know when you become an editor you know and I became an editor a bit further down the road uh, with the, the news of the world and and yes I think that the the sort of black and white judgments that we uh, that I that I took I was never entirely comfortable with uh, if I'm honest very easy to say in the rear view mirror, right? You know, th this is explanation, not excuse. It's very much in that category. But I was never, I was never enti entirely comfortable with that bit. It's the bit of the job that I didn't, that I didn't particularly enjoy, but it was definitely part of the job, you know? And, uh, and, and I think that uh, uh, that's another reason why I would now be an utterly useless editor because I just don't, I think, as you say, partly because of everything I went through and what happened, I'm just, I'm just not interested enough, uh, apart from anything else to, to sit in judgment of, uh, to sit in judgment of other people in the way that you kind of got to, if you're editing a newspaper, you've got to take a view. One thing that always strikes me about these things is the people who work on tabloids can, and their view of the work they're doing compared to perhaps public perception. And my view was always that the public saw, particularly the Sun and the News of the World, as titillating, kind of semi-humorous um, organs, that, as well as having, you know, incredible stories and all the rest of it. In, in watching the proceedings of the select committees and of Leveson and things, one thing that came out that I hadn't really considered and I think it was just an amalgam of impressions from yourself and Rebecca Brooks and Rupert Murdoch and various people, was that pe the people who worked on, this will be true of other papers as well, the people who worked at the Sun and the News of the World kind of felt a sense of moral purpose, that they genuinely felt they were acting in the public interest, that they were almost sort of borderline detectives who worked in print, that they were exposing wrongdoing, that, they, that the public had a right to know about things. I mean, am I right that that was the kind of mood in the office? Well, it's a mix, you know, you can't pick one day in isolation, but there were days when that was the view, I think, yeah, and, and by the way, justified. You know, the, the, the days is the other thing, obviously, I've, I've, I've done, you know, in more recent years is look back, you know, I was editor of the News of the World four years, I spent five years, you know, then talking about it. Um, you know, and, and there were, you know, I should, I should say, by the way, you know, right at the start of the conversation, that, you know, any conversation I'm going to have about the news of the world has to start with an apology, right? Because I got a tremendous amount wrong. You know, I'll always argue that I didn't break the law, and, but, 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 I, but I got a tremendous amount wrong. But not everything that we did was wrong. 
you know, the, the, certainly during my time as an editor, I can't talk for others, but in my time as an editor, you know, I also did some things that I'm still, I still look at and think actually, you know, that was a good piece of work. We did actually run a decent campaign. We did actually get, you know, uh, drive through some, some constructive change. Um, but I'm certainly not going to argue that that was in, you know, in every, in every case, but I think it's, you know, even now, right. If you look at, if you look at the type of presses I now do from afar, there are still things happening, you know, from the popular press that wouldn't happen through, through any other route. You know, the sun's kind of, you know, vaccination campaign, jabs campaign has been fantastic, right? You wouldn't find that anywhere else. There's not, there isn't another broadcaster running a campaign like that. I think what the daily mail have done with, you know, with um, uh, laptops um, during, during lockdown, you know, for, for, for schools or for pupils. Those kind of things tend not to happen from any other area of media and, you know, certainly in this country. And newspapers were and still are, I think, pretty good at, at, at catching the mood and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I don't think the, you know, I think you're, what, you're, what, what, you're, what you're saying is that that kind of, you know, that, that was the dominant, that was the overriding kind of sense of righteous purpose you know, in the office, there were days when that definitely was the case, but I wouldn't say that it was, it was the majority of days, even. Um, I think that there was a, I think that it was a, it was a, it was a touch more self-reflective than that. I mean, I, I've, you know, editoritis, right, is a condition that, 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 that afflicts uh, those who find themselves in the editor's chair of a national newspaper, perhaps some broadcasters as well. And I, uh, and, I, and, I, and I would say that I definitely suffered from editoritis on, on, on occasion. The main symptom of it is that you think the world revolves around you and whatever it is you're, you're planning to publish, right? That you are the center of the universe and that whatever's going to come out in the news of the world that weekend will be the thing that matters most. And, and you know, look, newspaper sales are still pretty high during my time. Uh, there were days actually when we did drive the news, but they were, wasn't everywhere by any means you know it was so there was a, a slight sense of self-importance now I think that I can I can recognize looking back two things come from that I guess uh, one did the things that on reflection were wrong feel wrong at the time and being fair to tabloids and not just the ones that you were involved in what things well actually no it's about the ones you're involved in um, what things did you get right at the time we ran some great campaigns, you know, and we, we we did some we did some you know some some solid campaigning work across a whole range of different issues that I was really proud of, you know. Um, but yeah, there were, there were absolutely things that I got wrong. Um, you know, I should say to you, Matt, right from the start, I'm not interested in in getting into any detail about that, and let me explain why. Um, because I spent so much time doing exactly that, you know. In my case, in a courtroom, more than one courtroom, by the way because um, I had three issues to deal with and I succeeded in two, failed in one, and I'm sure we'll discuss that. And I just took the view, I have taken the view that, that having uh, kind of talked about it in such depth, you know, in a, in a witness box, it's available for everyone to read. There isn't a question you can ask me that, that I haven't been asked several times. And it's all there. And, that, and, that, and that's, a, that's my decision. It might well irritate people. It might well irritate people who are listening to this podcast. But, you know, I've, I've made a decision in my life that, you know, that, 
that, that that chapter is is closed. I've said everything I'm going to say about it. There's nothing I can add to it, uh, um, and uh, and I've you know and I've and I've moved on from it. That sounded like a prude. I guess what I was trying to get at was rather than the specifics of any one case, mm. the general influence of tabloids on public life, on social attitudes, on the tone of our national debate. Has it been a positive or a negative one? I think it's a mix, like everything. You know, I think there are there. Are, I, I just don't think there's a there's a there's there's a there's a there's a clear answer to it. It is a mix, and when tabloids are you know doing their job or were doing their job effectively, you know, an element of it was to was to play back. You know, the mirror is called the mirror for a reason, right? It's 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 to play back. You know, where where your readers are, where you believe your readers are. And you can't possibly argue that the success of the Sun, let's say, right through the eighties, nineties, was was not uh, was at odds with where society was or with where their readers were. That it was entirely leading its readers down a path rather than reflecting where people were. Um, I think it's a mix, though. I think there were times when uh, uh, when the when the voice of a of a tabloid perhaps wasn't completely aligned with where we were, and of course some people will argue that well, you know, it had such a an, an impression, it left such an impression on the public that it would it would it would it would cause change in society. I'm sure that's right too on occasions, you know. Um, but it, it almost feels like an old-fashioned conversation now to me, because if we're talking about influence and we're talking about you know how, how media can change behavior you know the, the conversation now is about social media it's not about uh, uh, it's really not about newspapers in in my view i think if if they are important of course they are important they can still have a, and still do have an incredibly important part to play and the responsibilities that come with that but it's um but it's for me. It's, it's you know, social media is where the is where the conversation is now. You mentioned earlier about being the showbiz reporter at the Sun. It's amazing how that, and maybe I'm wrong, seemed to be such a crucial post for effectively blooding talent. That people who held that role often then went on to far bigger roles. Mm. Yourself, Dominic Mohan, Dan Wooten. You know, so many the bizarre column or the showbiz column, whatever it was called. Yeah. Why was that? such a crucial staging post in the career of someone at the sun i think because i think because it was a mini newspaper really you know and you were you were given your head you know the the editor stuart higgins uh, in my case when i took over bazaar you know didn't really get involved in it you're you were i had a page in fact i turned it into two pages during my time and and it you know and i had control of it and i decided what went in it and so um uh, there's that element but also i think you know, it was an interesting time in in showbiz journalism. Um, you know, there'd always been a relationship between showbiz and media, obviously. You know, for as, for as long as the two things have, have existed, but during my time, the kind of deal making piece really started to develop. So it was a much more transactional relationship. You know, there were brands being built. You know, the uh, the Beckhams, for example, were you know, kind of rose to fame during my time, and I knew them both. And when they, you know, when they got engaged. They invited us down and, you know, take a picture of the ring in an interview and, you know, and there's a, you know, there's a payment to be made. Uh, the whole Hello Magazine wedding piece, you remember all that, right? That's all kind of exploding around, around that time. 
And so I was, you know, and I was quite good at that, I suppose, you know, that was as a reporter, that was, you know, was one of my skills was the ability to kind of have a get a story and for everyone to feel good about it. You know, my editor, the readers, and in, even the celebrity themselves were coming away feeling like, yeah, well, that was a that was a good piece of business. Um, and so that I think is, and that was very much the kind of approach I took to editing as well. So I think that uh, I think that was a, I think that was a, a reason why, if you were successful, you know, in, in running the bizarre column, you stood a chance of uh, you stood a chance of succeeding as an editor. Is it possible, do you think, for celebrities to effectively feed the beast in the way that? perhaps the Beckhams did where they let you in without the beast turning on it. You know, you think of some of the people that have courted publicity and then it seems to backfire for them because they, they give the media this access to their private life. And then something happens where they want a bit of privacy and they can't get it. And probably large sections of the public say, we've kind of brought this on yourself. You've invited people in, you've effectively monetized mundane elements of your private life. You've kind of brought this on yourself. Is it possible? I mean, where is the line? If you're advising a celebrity, what what would you advise them to do? Well, that debate that debate was around, you know, during my time. It's even more so now, obviously, because celebrities have grabbed hold of the power of of social media, as I touched on earlier, and put it to really good use. You know, from a showbiz journalism point of view, which was you know kind of my my area as a reporter, it's a pretty difficult task now. Right, because because what celebrities have realised is that they don't really need the tabloid press. They yeah, can put it on Instagram. They can put it on Instagram, or they can you know set up a podcast, or they can you know they can like there's there's so many other routes through which you can communicate what you want to communicate in the way that you want it to you know to do so these days. Um, that I that I suspect I don't know so, but I suspect being a, a, sh- a showbiz journalist on a paper like the Sun is actually pretty hard work now. Um, uh, but yes, the, you know that 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 um, dynamic between wanting publicity and then only wanting a certain type of publicity. I always took the view that the the public actually worked that out far better than far better than, than we than we did. You know, they they're on they're onto that, and we're always onto that. But, well, if you want to be in the if you want to throw yourself all over the papers and take a check, you can't. You're not really in a position to moan if there's a story that, that that's uncomfortable for you. Um, and you know, to an to an to an extent, it's not just about it's not just about celebrities either, is it? I think it I think that extends across politics to a degree as well. You know, if you want to if you want to present yourself in a certain way to the electorate, um, uh, 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 but the truth is something different, then you know that's going to get that's that's a justifiable story. Um, and and obviously we saw that we saw that in the nineties with the major government. You know, that's not a new idea. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I have quite where it all ends. Uh, uh, who, who's who, who knows? I certainly don't. Um, but I think it's going to be a continual kind of it's a continual push and pull. I think what I think what what people wanted, you know, when I was a journalist, I think what people wanted when I was working in politics, I think what people want now is authenticity. Don't be something that you're not. I think that's the core of it all. You worked. I mean, for, with and for some era-defining individuals, Rupert Murdoch, really more so than David Cameron, uh, with the greatest respect to, to David Cameron, Murdoch is someone who people are probably more fascinated by than... There's probably only Bill Gates, 
Elon Musk, maybe Jeff Bezos that are in that world of like mega influence. What's he like in private, Rupert Murdoch? Uh, he is. I mean, I, you know, I should explain that as the editor of the News of the World, you are not uh, uh, as in touch with Rupert Murdoch as you are as the editor of The Sun. And I was never the editor of The Sun. I mean, I came into contact with him during my time at The Sun and I edited The Sun on a number of occasions as a sort of stand-in editor. And then you'd have your conversation with, you know, with, uh, with, with Rupert. Um, uh, but he was, you know, my relationship with him was always focused around the, the paper and he was uh, uh, on the detail. You know, he was, you know, he knew, obviously knew uh, kind of what, what worked and what didn't work. And he was very interested in politics, and so invariably the conversation would be would be around would be around politics. And so when you knew the call was coming, as it would occasionally on the news of the world, or if you're having a meeting with him, you needed to be on top of what was happening from a political perspective first and first and foremost. And he was interested in the big picture. You know, during my time in the in the news of the world, we had this mad period. Uh, uh, you might argue, sort of catastrophic period, of uh, of uh, promoting the paper only through the sale of, uh, or the giveaway, I should say, not the sale, the giveaway of free film DVDs. I don't know if you remember that period. Of course, you know, the biggest yeah. words on the front page. <laughs> the biggest words on the front page were, you know, free inside. And it was madness because we were, you know, we were training the, the reader to, to, to only appreciate the value of the paper if they got a free Tom Hanks film. You know, it was nuts. Um, but it was it was for quite a period of time. It wasn't just the news of the world, of course. Every paper was at it. It was like an arms race. You know, who could get the who could get the rights to carry on up the Khyber? You know, it was it was bonkers. And so I'd, I would often spend time, you know, talking to him about promotions, about you know where what the big picture was with the paper. And that's the other, you know, that's the other reality of editing a newspaper is that is that I'm sure I'm sure there are a number of people who think that I would, you know, turn up to work every day and sit in the office, you know, sort of stroking a cat and thinking to myself, whose life can I ruin today? Uh, when in fact, what I was doing was invariably was going down the corridor to the, you know, to the grown-ups, to the management, to fight our corner and to get some promotional money or to make sure that we had what we need to, to kind of, you know, uh, compete, uh, in my case, against the mail on Sunday. Um, a lot of kind of commercial arguments, a lot of arguments about, you know, we're changing the printing presses, big deal at that time, you know, were we still going to have the same deadlines? Could I still get the same football results into the towns that matter? Boring stuff, right? But that's the stuff of, a, of a, you know, as much as stuff as, a, as, a, as an editor's life is, is, uh, is the stories that you put in the paper. I think that's interesting stuff. I'd like to know what the real pressures are on people behind the scenes. I think that's fascinating. Well, it is, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, the news of the world was the poor relation, right? The news, you know, um, uh, it was always bottom of the pile, uh, not sales wise. And of course it was Rupert's first paper, but we were bottom of the pile. And, uh, and so a lot of my time was spent you know, sort of shouting at management, you know, over here. Don't forget us. Um, so was there, a, I mean, obviously there would be a rivalry between the Sun and the News of the World. And I think you've spoken about that in other places. But was mm. there a snobbery towards the News of the World, even from the Sun? Or is snobbery not the right way to think about it? I don't think snobbery is the right word, no, no. I mean, there wasn't a lot of snobbery at News. You know, that was one of the, that was one of the, you know, really interesting things about the place. You know, it was a, it was a, 
uh, it was a meritocracy, you know, and and that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed working there, because, you know, I was a I, I arrived there as a twenty year old, um, you know, lad hadn't been to university even, as I mentioned, um, straight out of local papers, you know, not and I and I you know and I I I succeeded. I had it. I had a, I had a good and successful career there until it stopped being a good and successful career, um, but. No one ever stopped me in the corridor and said, "Oi, where did you go to school, Sunshine?" Or, or show me your show me your qualifications. I need to I need to make sure that you're that you're able to go and do this job. And did they do that so, when you so worked some, for the Tory some, party? Some, some, some might argue that they should have done a couple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, did, did they? Did anyone ever ask you that when you worked for the Tory party? No, they did. They did. They did not. Um, but I think I think it was. Um, I think it was perfectly clear there what answer they would have got to the question, but it's um, you know, and that was a that was a that was a different sort of challenge from you know on on on, on that front, um, but, you know, and, and the class thing and it was interesting obviously because that was a big part of the that was a big part of the job when I arrived because when I when I started working for David you know the attack against him which was getting real traction was the toughest was the TOF attack, you know, Gordon was, was very clear that that was the, that was the route to success against David Cameron and George Osborne. And I took the view, I think because of what I just described in terms of the, my working environment, but also that's just kind of how I see things. I don't know whether it's, this is a gross generalization of an entire County, but I think it's a bit of an Essex. I grew up in Essex, right? And I think it's a bit of an Essex thing as well. We don't really care where you're from. We don't, we don't really care where you went to school uh, or, 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 or those elements of your background. What we care about is, are you any good at what you do? You know, are you, are you, are you, are you any good at it? And also the authenticity piece that I mentioned earlier, I think is, is also very important. You'll, you'll get sniffed out very quickly and so those two things combined when I arrived and worked for David you know led me to say to him I, th I think almost in our first meeting look I don't know why you are trying to deal with this tough issue in the way that you are because he was he was trying to deflect it and he was trying to kind of show himself as being you know man of the people and all that and, and I said look just, just just be yourself because my instinct is that I don't think people care care about that now listen if you're no good at your job if we, if we, if the, if the campaign is a failure, then of course they will use the fact that you had a very privileged upbringing and education to beat you around the head. Of course they will, but I don't think that's the that's the that's the thing they're going to actually use to judge you. And it took us a while, but we you know we kind of followed that you know, strategy, and uh, and in the end, I think it in the end, I think it worked. Um, you know, to much to much to much to Gordon's frustration because he stuck with the tough attack for quite some time. The sort of the sort of uh, summit of it, if you like, was the crew by-election. Um, Edward Timpson. Edward Timpson, exactly right. And um, you know, big victory for us. And I remember turning up there for the for the campaigning, and there were. I mean, I don't know if it was a Moss Bros or some other gentleman's outfitters in crew, uh, but I think they still look upon it as the greatest day of their lives uh, because they just had a flood of Labour activists coming in and buying up every morning suit or renting every morning suit and top hat so that they could wander the streets with the, you know, with a cane, maybe, I don't know, you know, <laughs> campaigning against, campaigning against uh, uh, Edward Timpson and David. And it failed, you know, um, 
for the reason for the reasons I think I, you know for the reasons I think I said you know I just don't think that's what people were focused on. I think they were focused on you know are you are you any good at what you do? I think you're right, and I don't think that's just an Essex thing. I think that's where British people are in general. I come from a working class background. I couldn't give a toss where my prime ministers went to school. I want the best person mm. to get the job. Um, just before we come on to Cameron, because that is fascinating, and, and all those issues about class are, are really, really interesting. But just, just finally on Murdoch, I think there are two things recently in popular culture that have kind of brought him again to the fore. One is succession, which is one of the greatest TV, if not the greatest TV show ever made. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen it. I've seen it, yeah. How much is Rupert Murdoch like Logan Roy? I can't even recognize any of it, you know, but he's because uh, I've not, you know, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant tele program, it's a brilliant television program, right? But honestly, I don't know. I, 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 no, I, I, I'd love to be able to tell you that you know that scene, or on the uh, floor. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, no, I was never asked to do that. Um, no, but it's, it's, it's fantastic telly. As I understand it, actually, it's just kind of, it's a sort of, it's a mix of different, it's a mix of different characters. Um, uh, but no, I, uh, I I enjoyed it as much as everyone else did, I'm sure. And what was he like on the phone? Because one thing, just taking out, and, and obviously people will have their moral view of Rupert Murdoch, but I think even his harshest critics would have to accept that his products are very successful. He understands the marketplaces in which he sells. And if you think of things, you know, as diverse as the Times, Sky Sports, 20th Century Fox, all these different mm. things. Sky Sports, whatever issues, it, it's a phenomenal product. It's, it's a really high quality thing. People can, you know, discussions about how much it costs to access and its effect on football and all, all the rest of it are, are, are different. But as a product, it's, it's supreme, really. And he, he understands his customers in a way that probably very few business people ever will. So just for, just on his talent, he seems to be really quite unique in understanding his customer base and understanding the global media landscape. I mean, it's hard to think of anyone else. Because the other thing I was going to say is Robert Maxwell and that brilliant book, Fall, and I don't know if you've read that. I haven't read that, no. It's incredible. And again, that makes me think of succession. But, but the difference between Maxwell and Murdoch is so stark. Murdoch, Maxwell it kind of comes across as slightly bumbling and everything. Murdoch just seems to be a far more talented, gifted operator. I don't know if when you worked for him, whether that, that, whether that's fair, whether, whether he is this kind of multi-talented individual is the way I'm describing him. Well, I think, um, I think the evidence is pretty clear that, you know, that he was and, and is, uh, and I think the kind of, risk element as well to you know because sky you know everyone can now look back on that and say well, what a success you know i mean it, it almost did for him you know and almost did for the business uh, you know as you you know you would have read about in other books so i think he was that combination of 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 sort of seeing where things were moving you know of being able to kind of predict where trends were you know when trends were changing or were moving into a into a into an entirely new direction. The Sky Sports is interesting. Sky News, in a way, is more interesting. You know because I think Sky News, which which you know sort of set the you know the the, the political agenda into a, on, on an entirely different path, um, a path that Tony you know uh, Blair understood uh, and recognised you know before he became prime minister and he put it to 
good work. He could see that this was obviously BBC later as well with, you know, the 24 hour news, but you could see that this was here to stay and that this was a tool to put to work. Uh, uh, so I think, I think, I think Sky News played an incredibly important part, not just in how we, how we kind of, um, uh, uh, how we take and, uh, uh, and, and watch our news, but I think it had, you talked about the influence of newspapers earlier. I think the influence of, of Sky News on politics was enormous. Uh, that was the first big change. The second big change, of course, was the internet. I think social media has brought another big change to politics as well. Um, you know, and, 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 and Rupert has been at the centre of all that. He's now setting up a rival to Sky News, which will be a mm. UK Fox News, whatever it's going to be branded. There's been on social media, which I know isn't the uh, precise barometer of public opinion. There seems to be a, a slight nervousness about what this new channel might be like. Because it's going to be like Fox News. Should people be worried about it? I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. Um, I don't know what I don't know what I've read. Um, you know, so we'll we'll see. But I think it would be a bit naive to think that those people that are putting that together, and, and, and I really don't know what the plans are, that they don't recognise that there might be one or two issues and there might be one or two people saying, hang on a second, is this thing going to be what you've just described? I can't believe that they are not alive to that and that they are not, you know, tailoring the product accordingly, if I can put it that way. Um, but I just, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. It'll be really interesting to see if there's a market for it, actually. Because um, it's, it, you know, we were talking earlier about the, you know, the sort of, uh, possibly because we're men of a certain age, the need for kind of reasonable conversation. I don't know whether their plan is for reasonable conversation. <laughs> Something tells me that it might well not be. And so we'll see, you know, whether or not there's a proper market for that still. I've, I'm exhausted by news, you know. Um, I love news, right, obviously, because it's sort of, it's in, it's in my blood. But, you know, after, after, after Brexit and now what we've been through, you know, as a country, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a planet, you know, uh, I'm, just ex I'm just exhausted by news. And I'm not sure that the answer to my news needs going forward is someone screaming on a television. But I could well be wrong. <laughs> I suppose it depends who it hears someone. <laughs> what they're screaming about, that tends to determine whether people like it or not, it seems. Um, yeah, yeah. Just on Murdoch, finally then, I, I was really struck by seeing him in front of the select committee that people often project onto him this all-powerful thing. And then here was, and obviously... He's of, he's of a certain age now. And he may have well been projecting, a, you know, he may well have been behaving in a particular way because he wanted to look um, more humble or whatever. But it was like, oh God, he's just this little guy. Now, again, he was probably behaving in a certain way to get a certain reaction and people's presumptions about him are probably aren't always entirely correct. But when you dealt with him, would it be like, Andy, it's Rupert. What the bloody hell's going on at the news of the world? Or would he go, hey, Andy, mate, there's a guy, you know, was he, was he, was he a tough boss? Was it informal? Was it formal? Would you have to call him? Yes, sir. Would he refer to you as get my head on the phone? He, he was, the, he was the boss, but it was a, always a, always a proper conversation. And, you know, the thing, the thing that I would say uh, more than anything else is that he was interested. You know, th this he, might, um, he was, he was interested and you can't, you can't, 
uh, and given the amount of, as you just described, given the amount of sort of plates in the air, the amount of things that he was interested in, the amount of deals that were going on, you know, during my time, it was the birth of the internet, right? So, you know, the company was trying to get a foothold. There was a whole MySpace saga and, you know, all that, all that stuff. Given all those things that were going on, that he would call them and be having a conversation, you know, about the one product in his, you know, in his, you know, in his world, he was always interested and he was always, you know, uh, fo focused on, right, you know, the competition as well. You know, where are we? Where's the market share? Where are we making progress? Where are we not making progress? Really interested in sport, your point about Sky Sports. And, you know, during my time on the Sun, I remember a number of conversations with him when the company was considering buying Man United. Um, so that was quite yeah. interesting. Um, I think Peter Mandelson blocked that. I think, I think Sky were trying to buy Man United at the time, I seem to remember. Um, shame it wasn't Spurs was my only opinion at the time I did try and sort of steer the conversation that way but I didn't get very far um, uh, uh, but yeah that's the, that is the main thing you know and I, and I you know so I think that's a just a sort of truth of life isn't it is it you, you know you've got to be interested in stuff you know that's certainly the truth of journalism you know um, you've got to be interested and he and, and he always was did you fear him but he's my boss, right? So, you know, who doesn't, I suppose, in the modern workplace, you're not allowed to fear your boss anymore. But I, I, I actually fear would probably be the wrong word. You know, I, I, I absolutely respected him because that's, that was the culture of the place, right? Is that it didn't need a speech to be given about who we are and where we're going because you'd see it every day. You could, you could, you could see that this, you know, by, by, by this, I mean News Corp you know, was a, was, a, was a company that was doing things and that he was a man who had done things. You know, he, he had had uh, an incredible career himself, obviously, you know, and that, and that set a standard. You know, it was uh, that meritocracy that I touched on earlier. That was all from him. You know, that was all, that all flowed down from the top. Have you spoken to him since? Everything. No, I had a brief conversation with him a number of years ago, but I haven't seen him for a long time. You know, this may sound like a really odd take, but I remember at the time when, when it all kicked off and the trials were going on and everything, and there's, there was that footage of him and Rebecca Brooks in the street, and they kind of get mobbed by reporters and paparazzi, and he says, she's my priority, she's my... Oh, words to that effect. And in that moment, this may seem really strange, but just as a viewer, I thought, what about Andy Coulson? You know, how are you going to feel watching that when the boss is saying, she's my number one priority? That's very sweet of you, Matt. Thank but you. did that <laughs> did that hurt you when you saw that? No, I mean I was too busy dealing with my own issues, so no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't paying attention to that at the time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let's talk about David Cameron then. We, and, and working for the Tories and working in Downing Street. And as you say, I, I was going to, we've kind of already addressed this, but it did feel like you were hired specifically, not just because of your talent in the media and your understanding of the media landscape and, and your political instincts as they related to the media, 
but because David Cameron had a, an, an issue with his perception about class and you're a working class guy who'd done well, you understood your readers, you understood elements of the mood of the nation, you're, you're brought in to, to, to bring that in. Um, and I think you're right, just to pick up where we were earlier, I don't think people minded that he was posh. And I was working for Labour around that time. And I remember going to the crew by election. Mm. I was just, I grew up in a working, <laughs> talk about this all the time, listen, get sick of it. I grew up in a single family on benefits, raised by a single mum, Labour to the core. I was shocked at how class laden our attacks on the Tories were during that campaign. and was just sort of embarrassed by it. And I just thought mm. this isn't going to resonate with people at all. So it's really interesting that your instincts were similar and that people would effectively judge him on the job he was doing. Now, Cameron, you weren't the only voice in Cameron's kind of crew. Mm. Steve Hilton was another voice who was mm. competing for Cameron's heart, if you like. And I think, I'm not sure if Cameron himself has described it like this, other people have, that, that perhaps his heart was with Steve Hilton, with some of the sort of liberal stuff, mm. but his head was with you. Was that how it felt to you at the time? Oh, I don't know. Because bear in mind, it wasn't just me and Steve, right? There was a wider group. George was there, obviously, as, a, as the probably the most important voice in the room. Um, uh, you know, Kate Fall, Ed Llewellyn. You know, there are there are there are a number of us. Um, so no, I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say that you know that I was, I was you know the loudest voice in his head. Uh, and as for Steve being the loudest voice in his heart, I don't know about that really. I mean, it, it was. Yeah, Steve was Steve had some brilliant ideas, you know. And Steve was there, you know, before I was, you know, Steve had started with David as soon as he became before he became leader. Uh, and and had some, I thought, some brilliant ideas. Uh, I just thought some of it was a bit bonkers as well. Uh, and my job I, I, I saw as, as being sort of, you know, first and foremost was to be at, at least say, I think it's bonkers. Yeah, and by the way, I'm an, I'm an advisor, so it's up to you what you do about it. But you know, if you want me in the room then let me have a view. And, you know, what I said to David was, look, I, I will give you my view because I can't help myself apart from anything else. But as long as I'm right uh, more than I'm wrong, then I'll be of value to you. It's actually the, the sort of rule that I set for the consultancy business that I have now. I think it's, it's a very good way of judging the quality of advice. But what it means is that you allow people to get things wrong. And Steve was allowed to get things wrong. That was his value. David wanted him to have the bonkers ideas because he knew that maybe one out of 10 would, would have a germ of genius about it. And I think that was probably about right. I don't know what my percentage was, but I, yeah, because I was more pragmatic. Um, I was more sort of, uh, uh, I suppose my ideas were, were, were more practical really and i think rooted in where, where how how i see the world and where i saw the opportunity um, for david and it was much more geared towards it's a horrible political cliche but it's a cliche for a good reason for that you know that, those people who are, who are sort of striving to get on in their lives you know that's that's kind of my background and you know my the, the, where you know i was like you i was you know i, I was you know brought up in a working class environment um, and, and I just, but, uh, but that need to kind of, you know, succeed in life to drive on in life, I felt was the, uh, was, was where David should, should be positioned and that those were the people that in my view, he was representing, uh, and Steve took a, Steve took a slightly different view of, than that. And, and, and so, you know, we had a lot of success on the striving front, 
And then, you know, we had quite a lot of success as well in the early days with, with Steve's agenda. But it all got confused, I think, when we then actually got into the into the sharp end of the election campaign. And then you had these two messages. You had this set of messages that were anchored around this idea of, of strivers and you had the big society. Uh, and although I believe and still do obviously believe that the, 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 what sits within the big society idea is essentially a, a very powerful and, and, and I think entirely uh, 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 positive set of messages, there's a cold reality about an election campaign. You can really only set one direction. You can't have a mix. It's got to be clear. And I think where we ended up, and possibly the reason why we didn't get the majority, is because we ended up in a bit of a with a bit of a mess. And Steve and I were the were to an extent the sort of physical embodiment of that. Uh, David at one point actually put us both in the same office. It was a tiny little glass box right in the middle of the campaign headquarters. It was ridiculous. I think we, we felt like we were in some sort of social experiment, and uh, and it was to an extent. And it was the, it was the two of us sat over two tiny desks in this glass box, and it and it was and I think it was David's attempt to try and see whether or not we could I don't know either one of us would kill the other or that we would somehow reach some kind of consensus. We never quite got there, in truth. But you are both still alive. We were both still alive. Yeah, Steve's in California. Looks very well. Um, uh, yeah, he's uh, he did ju- he did just fine. Oh, <laughs> working for Rupert Murdoch, of course. <laughs> well, we'll come on to that. <laughs> that office you were both stuck in was known as the Love Pod. It was known as the Love Pod. There wasn't a lot of love in it. I've got to tell you, uh, no. And I and I and, and the irony of Steve, of course, now working for uh, working for Rupert and being on television, having spent so many hours of my life listening to Steve uh, bang on about the the horrors of the Murdoch press, uh, is almost too much to bear. But there we are. And he's not just working for Rupert Murdoch. He's a pro-Trump broadcaster on fox news yeah 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 so in the oh. end you turned out to be the liberal one <laughs> that's what life does to you well it's an amazing dynamic thinking of the two of you in there it sounds actually you have a you have a fonder recollection of it perhaps than than people might i do think. because i you know I, steve is an unusual is a highly unusual character you know and i think that's a good thing to have in a team you know i think actually we were uh, although although the messaging i think did suffer in the way that I've just described. I think it was, it was a very it was a very happy ship in lots of ways. Uh, and David inspired loyalty. He was a good boss and people liked working for him. Uh, it, it's no, it, you know, it's no coincidence that I think the people that work with him have stayed very loyal to him. Uh, I think the best demonstration actually of David's uh, sort of approach is his relationship with George, which I think is still massively undervalued, never mind the decisions that they make. But the fact that we had, you know, number 10 and number 11 working as closely as as they did for so long is, you know, it was an incredibly valuable thing. And uh, 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 both, in, both in opposition, much more importantly in government. And of course, we, you know, we've seen so many times that when number 10 and, and, and 11 are uh, are kind of at odds. It's bad, bad news for the country, and and they were alive to that. So I think David giving George the room to be able to do the things he needed to do, and vice versa, I think was one of the one of the big positives from their time. The 2010 election is fascinating, and the reasons for the outcome are. My take on it might be different to yours. My view was that people were kind of sick of, we're getting sick of Labour. 
but they hadn't fully, fully turned away from Labour at the time. They were quite interested in Cameron. They quite liked him. But the Tory party was recovering from the leadership of particularly Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah. And although Michael Howard had got quite a creditable result in 2005, given that he's up against Tony Blair, that, that people wanted the Tory party to have modernised further in order to win. Now, maybe that's just because I'm a new Labour kind of guy and I think, well, the Tory party can only win when it's fi- when it looks kind of socially liberal and more in tune with the country in, in a post-new Labour world. Hmm. That actually, the thing that held Cameron back was that, in a way, he wasn't enough like Steve Hilton. Maybe not like Steve Hilton specifically, but that had he modernised the Tory party more, had he had a clause four moment and said, look, the Tory party's really changed, we're really more in tune with more liberal aspects of British society, that might have got him over the line. Maybe I'm wrong in presuming that actually you think he should have been a bit more true blue Tory in order to have won in 2010. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with the latter, really. And, you know, when you look at the campaign that he ran that, you know, surprised many when he ended up with, you know, with a majority um, after my time, you know, that was actually much more in line with that campaign was much more in line with, I suppose, where I was, uh, where, my, where my instincts were, right? It was, it was a, it was a pretty uh, a straightforward agenda that he was presenting. Now he had the benefit of then of being able to talk about some time as prime minister and his and his, his kind of record. He'd done some good things because the coalition, of course, which I thought was a was a fascinating was a, during my time in in number ten uh, was a was a was a fascinating exercise, and I think uh, and worked. You know, I think it was I think it would be a slight overstatement to say it was a golden era of British politics, but it was it was it was actually well received. Um, and I think that is in, you know, uh, I think the Lib Dems need to take credit for that uh, or get credit for that. Um, but I think it was also down to David's style of leadership and David's attitude about what it is to be a prime minister. I remember a conversation with, 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 with David you know, when we were uh, still in opposition and Steve, in fact, and others um, were arguing that it, we needed to define, you know, Cameronism. Uh, and David, I very rarely saw David lose his temper, but he lost his temper in this conversation. And he said, look, well, I'm, I'm not an ism, right? And we are not an ism, right? The job is very straightforward, right? We leave it better than we found it. That's it. And then that was the end of the conversation. And I really like that. That's enough for me, right? It's not, uh, we all want a bit of sunlit uplands and we all want, you know, you know, you know real change, you know, forever. Uh, uh, but in the end, let's be blunt about it. You want a prime minister who's going to leave it better than they found it. Uh, that's certainly, that's my, that was my attitude. And I think that David took that attitude. I think it's that attitude, actually, that led him to be so willing to engage in the coalition talks, to kind of jump over where everyone else was and to make that coalition work. Because he saw it in very pragmatic terms, in the, in the, way, in the way that I just described. And I don't think that's, a, I think that's, no, I think that's no bad thing. When I see politicians kind of go chasing after that, that kind of that's you know that that that's, that's that sort of greater prize, I'm always slightly kind of. I don't know if that makes me a cynic or not, but I I, I, I don't think uh, uh, people want to love their politicians. I think they want them to do a decent job. I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I think a little bit of, I think you need a little bit of that, as you say. You need to turn people on a bit. You need to excite them and give them a bit of hope because ultimately yeah. you've got to get them off their backsides and into the polling stations. But I think you're right. In reality, most people 
simultaneously like to periodically be uh, inspired by a politician, they also, I think most people have a pretty <laughs> pragmatic view that there's only so much any politician can do anyway and just make my life a bit better and people will yeah. But you've got to capture those moments. You've got to, of course, there's the there's the presentational element and there is the emotional element of politics. You've got to, you know, engage and use that. You've got to, and you've got to, just to, if for no other reason to explain to people that you get it, that you understand what they're feeling and you understand the difficulties that they're going through. And that requires emotion uh, to be to be deployed. But I, I, I think particularly in the period that we've been through politics after I've left number 10, you know, over the course of the last five or six years, you know, I, I think that the public's expectations are so much lower, <laughs> which perhaps in itself is a depressing fact. But, you know, we've seen politicians tearing each other to, 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 to bits. I just don't think that's I don't think that's the route to I don't think that's the route to political success. Um, Prime ministers uh, and effectively administrations are judged often in time. You know, it's their predecessors and their successors, which then help frame them. Uh, people had opinions about Gordon Brown and then Theresa May came along and then people had opinions about Theresa May and then Boris Johnson comes along and you kind of have a, a league table in your mind actually you go, well, it turns out they weren't too bad or it turns out they were worse than we thought they were or whatever. What followed Cameron's departure from Downing Street um, and you know, with Brexit and everything, one of those dominant figures is Dominic Cummings and he was someone you were instrumental in effectively keeping out of the centre of powers, sort of seeing that you were crucial in blocking his appointment as a special advisor to Michael Gove, um, mm. which people might be interested to hear. I mean, what was your view of him? Did you see him as a, as a negative influence on British politics? Well, I just described the team around David and it was a very tight team and a very loyal team. And during the uh, run up to the election, uh, uh, Michael Gove was introduced into that team, uh, who is a you know I think a, a you know, incredibly kind of able, talented guy, and he added massive value uh, at, that, at that time with his thinking. But he came with Dominic Cummings uh, because he was his special advisor at the time, and so as a as a result, there was a, a series of leaks from the centre, you know, from the campaign team, basically, in terms of what we were planning to do or what we might be doing in discussions that we were having. And that's obviously really difficult for you. If you're trying to run a campaign, you can't have that stuff um, kind of leaking out. And so I, uh, I, you know, I said that to him because it was perfectly clear it was coming from him. And I said, like, you just can't do that. Please don't stop. And, uh, and he just, you know, he just ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> and carried and carried on uh and uh and in the end you know we had a conversation with it as a group and uh and david said look i think he's you know he's got he's got to go so and so he did but then after after i left he was uh, i can't remember exactly the timing but he was brought, he was brought back in um but you know i so i never i never worked closely with him uh so i can't talk to his his sort of intellectual his skills um i know people who've worked with him uh, and it's in, in, and from the little focus group of people that I know, half of them, you know, ended up on the wrong side of his of of, of him, and and some of them, you know, therefore lost their jobs. The other the other half though talked about him in glowing terms that he was a sort of inspirational individual that if you were on the team, you were on the team, and very protective of them. You know, I never worked that closely with a guy, so I can't I can't really say. Your successor 
is Craig Oliver. He ends mm. up running the comms effectively for the Remain campaign. So let's say history's different, that you're not arrested, that there's no trial, that you don't go to prison. That Brexit referendum happens. What would your role have been in it, it been? Would you have had to say, like, I can't, I can't run the Remain side? And, and let's say you had run or played some part in the messaging of Stronger In, how different would it have been had it been run by Andy Coulson? Oh, God, I don't know. I was dealing with my own issues by that stage. It's an excellent, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I've had some, you know, I've had some moments where I thought, well, I would never have, I, I would never have done that. But it's so easy with the benefit of hindsight, right? So there's a heavy caveat on anything that I'm going to say now, um, because it's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it, to, to sort of replay a, a campaign in reverse. But I, and so, and I've, and I've thought about, you know, some of the conversations that we had, you know, before I left around you know the issues that were at the center of of you know of the of the whole debate uh and i'm pretty confident that i would not have been uh i think i think i would have been a, a, a fan of kicking it down the road which sounds uh i suspect pretty superficial but i think that would have been my that would, i think that's where i would have been i think that's where george was and i think that's where i would have been george and i were invariably kind of you know sort of saw things the same way and I think I I would have been I certainly would have been asking the question why now uh, and I think the answer to why now in part was you know and again I wasn't in the room so this is this is this is just guesswork really but I think when you won an election everyone thought you were going to lose I think your confidence is pretty high and I think if you've made the decision as I as I think David had this has got to be dealt with at some point this question has got to be answered. I can't really think that at a better time than now, I suspect. You know, I've sorted out Scottish independence. I've just won an election. Actually, I think, I think now's the time to do it. And I'd and I, 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 I like to think that my instincts would have been, I'm not entirely sure about that. And then the, and then the other, you know, some of, there are so many different issues at play, but I think that the, I think the other, the other, I think, I think the other conclusion I would have reached is that uh, you're about to ask a question that's got not a lot to do with you, David. Because <laughs> I don't think it did, had anything to do with him. People weren't making a judgment on him. I didn't. I don't think as part of that referendum, they were making judgment about entirely different issues. And of course, in the end, that was boiled down to, with Cummings involved, do you want more control in your life? Which is a very, very dangerous question to ask. Um, uh, dangerous is the wrong word, a, a, a very interesting question to ask would be a better way of putting it. Politically dangerous. Um, and I uh, I think that, uh, that, that the campaign was pretty poor. Uh, again, very easy to say from, you know, from the outside and from looking back. But I think there were some mistakes made in the campaign. I think everyone would accept that now. Um, fighting on the wrong fronts. The messages weren't clear at all. Um, and that was partly, you know, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was in some ways a sort of the impossible challenge because if you're going to try and defend staying in, you've got to explain the benefits. And to explain the benefits, you must have done that. You must have rolled that pitch over a very long period of time previously. We might argue as far back as when I was there, right? And I left in 2011. And there wasn't a lot of rolling the pitch then, that's for sure. Um, and also around the issue of immigration, which I think played its part. You know, I think David didn't do enough on that front, but also I think he wasn't allowed to do enough. 
every time we mentioned, got close to the subject of immigration on the BBC, you get screamed at, right? Don't whistle politics. You know, the world would go mad every time the Tory party dared to raise the issue. And David did it in pretty reasonable terms, you might remember, right? He had some reasonable things to say about, you know, that, that area of policy every time it exploded as a story. So I'm not saying the BBC were to blame for the referendum result, but I think that's, a, that's an element as well, right? There wasn't room for that debate. But would you have run the Remain campaign's comms if you'd have asked? You said, Andy, I, I, I want you to run the, the Remain campaign. You know, I want you to you know, do the comms, get on with it. <laughs> I bloody well do. You know, I, would you do that? Or would you say, like, I can't be running the Remain campaign. I'm, I'm not sure which way I'm going to vote on this. Uh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would have, I, you know, I would have sat and had a conversation with him and tried to understand the detail of it. Um, yeah, my, my plan, by the way, was always to leave. You know, uh, I took I took the job on the basis that I wouldn't go into number ten. Uh, that I'd so only why didn't the, you? I mean, I knew that. So I, why the reluctance yeah. to go to number ten? Because I'd promised my wife that I wouldn't. So I, you know, I'd, I'd gone through the news of the world, worked pretty hard, uh, uh, took the uh, political job because, in large part, I just thought this is this is going to be a fascinating challenge. I like David. I like George. I can see what they're trying to do. Um, I'd actually spent far more time with Labour politicians than I had than I had Tory politicians, but I liked I liked what they were doing and what they were saying. I did believe that the party was was back pointing in the right direction again. Um, but I said to Eloise, "Look, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to make this you know the rest of my career. Oh, you know, oh, I think this is a fascinating challenge, and then I won't do it. But of course, what happens in politics? You've been there. You know what it feels like. It's very addictive. And then when you know." Uh, uh, the guy who is going to become prime minister says to you, you know, I really need you to stay on. You know, I want you to be a part of this. That's a very flattering thing to hear. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but when you're there, there is that sort of sense of purpose, right? It is a, it's, it's not like running a, it's not like running a newspaper, you know, you are doing important stuff, you know, with important, you know, in, 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 you know, with, with very important decisions being made. And I really enjoyed it. It was deeply, deeply rewarding professionally. Um, and so I, so I went into number 10, uh, but my plan was always to leave uh, and, then, and then get into business because the people I admire in life are people who got out and built something for themselves. You know, we talked about Rupert Murdoch earlier. Um, you know, those are, the, those, are the, those are the people that I really admire, someone who built something from scratch. And, and in my tiny little way, tiny little way, that's exactly what I've done, having had to um, obviously take a bit longer than I expected getting there. I always wondered if there was part of you, maybe even subconsciously, that thought the reason why you didn't want to work in number 10 was you'd had a career in tabloids. There might be stuff there, even if you felt you're innocent, that could be harmful. And that if you're in number 10, it's a bigger story. Whether that had played any part in that calculation at all? No, the calculation was purely about the promise that I'd made Eloise that you know that, that for for her and for the kids because I've been around politics enough to know that it totally absorbs your life, totally takes over your life, and I just didn't want to, I just didn't want that to happen. Um, and uh, but I got persuaded otherwise. Um, but yeah, certainly looking back, was it a mistake to go into number ten? Uh, yes, I think it was. Uh, was it a mistake to go into politics? I think I can definitely build a case for saying, yes, it was. Because my situation became very political. 
I wasn't just an ex-Murdoch employee. I was also David Cameron's um, you know, communications director. So I ticked two boxes in that sense. Um, but I think life is very, very easy, Matt, to kind of look at your life and sort of pick it apart in that way. And I'm just, I'm just, that's just not where I've ended up, really. I think that my, for all the, you know, good and bad experiences, and I've had quite a number of bad experiences, um, you know, I think I've ended up in a place where I'm, you know, I'm better for it all. You know, I'm, I'm a better dad. I'm a better, better husband, better advisor, certainly professionally now as a result of what happened to me, because, you know, I, I advise people now on, on, you know, on strategy and I'm someone who's been up and down the hill a few times, if I can put it that way. And, and I, you know, I, I've, I've absolutely got to a point in my life where, you know, I, I can look back at everything that's happened and say that I'm better for it. Your podcast, Crisis What Crisis, is superb. And you talk to other people who have experienced crisis about what it's like to be in the middle of these storms. All different types of crises, all different people from yeah. different walks of life that bring this experience. And it's a fascinating listen. And apart well, from anything you. else, when I first discovered it, and it was because you were interviewed on the Media Masters podcast, obviously you're someone I'd wanted to approach for this, but wasn't sure if you were doing interviews. And then I discovered that you've been doing this podcast, which is just a fascinating... I mean, you're the most fascinating thing in it. You know, but you have some amazing guests on it. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that. It's very but it's nice amazing that, you, so. that you've been through that thing. And obviously people will, will have their own conclusions on whether they think you're guilty or not, on, on what you did or didn't do, and your effect on public life and all those things. Taking all those things out of it, it is fascinating that you, Andy Coulson, are doing this podcast and sharing, almost putting your own personal experience in, in a way... I, I guess an element of it is a cautionary tale for other people. It's also yeah. a, a helpful thing for other people to say, if you find yourself in the middle of a storm of your making or not, here are the things you can do to cope with it. So, I mean, the, the, the podcast is brilliant, but just thinking about your own storm, your own crisis and the things you learned. Yeah. Firstly, just as an experience to go through that thing, to be on trial in Scotland, at the Old Bailey, and to be giving evidence to the Leveson Inquiry at the same time, taking out what had or hadn't happened and the reason that you find yourself in those docks, as a person, as a human being, how did it feel to effectively be public enemy number one? Not great. It's the, it's the, short, did, and, yeah. it's the short and superficial answer. And it was a... Uh, you know, they, they weren't all happening at once, obviously. You know, Leveson was before I was put on trial. So I was on, I was on live television before I, I was put on trial, which is quite unusual. Uh, even the police thought that was a bad idea. Um, but that happened. And then I had an eight and a half month trial uh, in the Old Bailey. Uh, and I was, uh, I was convicted of one of the charges I was facing. So then I went to prison for just under five months. And I was in prison knowing most people when they're in prison, not everyone, but most people when they're in prison know that at least, you know, the, where the door is. I, I never knew where the door was because I knew I'd be coming straight out of prison and going straight into another trial in Scotland, which took a number of months to reach its conclusion. And I was, I was acquitted um, of, of that. And in, in between time, the remaining charge that I'd faced in the old Bailey had, 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 uh, had been dropped that they, uh, uh, CPS realised that they should never have brought it in the in the first place. So it was a very long process. It was sort of five years with an eight and a half month trial in the middle. 
so that was the biggest challenge really was that it was just so long and 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 of course during that period there's not much else you can do with your life you you know that reputational piece that you you know that you that you touch on was very real you know i was unemployable i was you know i was very much on the outside having been very much i suppose on the inside from a media and a, and, a, and from a political point of view and it was a really difficult place to find yourself but i but i i managed very quickly to get the, you know to the point where I, I and this perhaps sounds a, a bit airy fairy Matt but and I do think this is the core of how you how you kind of get through crisis is that I realized I was in crisis right I, I, I was I was present in it and I knew that I had control over some things and I and I knew that I had I didn't have control over a large number of potentially you know very damaging aspects of what was going on around me but I, but I concentrated on the bits that I did have control over. Uh, and I, you know, and I, and I focused hard on, uh, on how I wanted it to end. And, and that I think is the core of whether you're uh, strategizing for a, for a crisis or any other campaign. And I took a campaigning attitude to my, you know, to my situation. You've got to work out how you want it to end. Right. And, and I, I, I knew, um, you know I, know, I know who I am and I knew who I was. I knew that I've made a bag load of mistakes, uh, both professionally and personally, by the way. And all that was played out in court as well. It wasn't just about my professional life. Um, but I knew that, uh, that I, I, I'm more than my mistakes, that my mistakes were real, but that, that they don't sort of define me entirely. And, and that I would at some point not in the dock of the old Bailey, but I knew at some point I would be able to, uh, I'll, I would be able to get on with my life and, and, and put my life to constructive use uh, for me and for my family. And the main reason I got through, frankly, which is entirely non-transferable uh, is because of my wife, you know, Eloise, who was, who was just, you know, beyond amazing. Uh, uh, she's a, she's a much more evolved human being than I am. And so she got to the things that I've just described largely have come from her. Uh, and her her sort of view of the world, uh, and of course the support of my lads, my three sons, and my family and friends. It is a these crises are a proper audit on your life. You find out who your friends are. The cliche is true, you know. And I had uh, that was a massively net positive experience for me because I had far more people who owed me absolutely nothing Matt, who ran towards the gunfire than I had people who ran away. But there were a few who ran away, and even with those, I think kind of fair enough really you know i think you own your own you own your own views they're not my views they're your views and if you, if you don't want to be a part of it don't be a part of it and crisis also kind of you know really does bend people out of shape especially if it's played being played out in public yeah it's, and, it's, and of the friends that ran towards the gunfire that, that rallied around you how many of them were in politics oh a few yeah no a few um uh, there are a few around the other way as well, but I you know, politics doesn't lend itself. Actually, it's an interesting point because I don't think politics necessarily lends itself towards public loyalty. Um, but there were, I have to say, there are a number of people who who absolutely put their put themselves in the firing line, you know. And uh, for that, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm enormously grateful. Very lucky. I, I you know that's that's 
how I see it. It was a very, very difficult period of my life. Um, uh, but I, I, I was just, just incredibly lucky with the amount of support that, that I got. And did David Cameron message you? Well, that was pretty complicated because, of course, you know, the whole Leveson bit was, you know, that came from the centre. You know, I think I think there were some decisions made uh, in number 10 that I did not like at all, that I thought were fundamentally unfair. Um, you know, uh, uh, there was when I was on trial, um, as I explained, I got convicted, but uh, there was a verdict still pending on another charge, which eventually was dropped during that time. You know, there was a statement from number 10 that was, I thought, deeply, deeply inappropriate for someone who was still on trial. And my argument was always, I, I, I do not want and do not expect any favours from anyone. Why, sh why should I? Uh, I should be treated the same as everybody else. Uh, but, but that, I thought, I would totally overstep the line. Uh, funnily enough, myself and the judge didn't agree on much, but we agreed on that. And, and that, was, that was sort of made clear in, the, that was made clear in court. And have you spoken to David Cameron since then? I have, yeah, I have. And in the same way that I, you know, uh, it just doesn't come off as being pious, right? But in the same way as I, I sit here with you now, Matt, and say, I'm not, you know, I don't, I hope that people won't judge me entirely by my mistakes. And I've made a few. I sort of take the same view in, with regard to that mistake. I take the same view of, of him, right? You know, um, um, politics is messy, brutal. He was under real, Attack. I think it was the wrong decision. I think it was. I think it was, you know, a very bad decision. Um, but I've, um, you know, but I've made that view very clear. One of the most powerful things about hearing you talk about this, like this, and about your podcast, particularly given the year the planet has had, mm. is that a lot of people will feel bereft, like they're in a real, the biggest challenge of their life, whether it's mm. losing loved ones fears yeah. about their job, their future. Everyone's life now feels so uncertain. Hearing you talk about what you went through, which was so public, you're on trial at the Old Bailey, you go to Belmarsh Prison, this huge fall from grace. It is, I don't know if you think about it like this, but in a way, because your experience of a crisis was so severe, so public, so big, in a way that helps some people go, well, at least it's not as bad as that. I mean, I don't know if that's something that you're aware of, but just hearing you talk like that, you know, I people think of problems in their own life. They go, actually, hearing Andy Coulson talk about that makes me realise the thing that I thought was really bad perhaps isn't that bad. There was, a, there was a mate of mine. There was a time when I was in that unemployable phase, and a mate of mine is a very successful bloke. Took me out for lunch. He said, I've got a brilliant idea for you. I thought, fantastic, you know, some business he wants me to get involved in. He says, you know, it's a new route for me. This is going to be exciting, you know. He sat me down. He said, right, this is the idea. It's called Lunch with Andy. So, right. He said, you will sit in front of, you know, whoever, you know, is, is going to, we're, we're, going to, we're going to kind of engage with on this. And you're just going to tell them their story, right, uh, over a nice lunch. And I guarantee you they will come away in a better mood than they, than they left because they'll think, thank God. I'm not Andy Coulson. And <laughs> as entrepreneurial ideas go, it wasn't the most inspiring, I have to say. But do you know what? Actually, joking aside, having done this podcast, you know, the biggest learning for me personally is that, yeah, I had a tough time for five years. 
Right? It really was not. I would not. I would not um, kind of wish it on on my worst enemy. But having heard the stories that I've heard during the course of you know now three three series of of crisis, what crisis? You know, Martha Lane Fox, who was a second or third guest, said that you know crisis is not a competition. Right. And then that's a, something I've kept in my mind through all the conversations. But you know what? If it was a competition, you know, my situation doesn't get even get through the qualifiers. Right. Some of the stories I've heard are of a level that just makes my issues feel, you know, minor to to to, to put to put it mildly. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, the the the, the uh, uh, total unraveling of someone's life. Uh, we had a, a young lady on the podcast called Paisy Mahmood, and it's a story that people will know, remember a bit about, but mainly you know, with regard to her sister. So both Paisy and her sister were um, uh, were put into forced marriages by their by the father. Uh, her sister, very sadly, was a subject of an ITV drama very recently. was was then was then killed by her father. But Paisy's story uh, was utterly harrowing. And this uh, girl is in her, uh, her early early thirties. Spoke with such unbelievable clarity and a total lack of self pity about the horrors that she'd experienced as a young girl and, and beyond. That it just it blew, totally blew me away. I, I hope it had a, a an impact for anyone who listened to it. And at the core of it was that kind of that what it provided. I think to go to your question, what it provided and what I hope the podcast provides is that sense of perspective, right? And perspective is so important when you're going through crisis. It's so important. Um, and, and also, by the way, you know, less seriously, a sense of humor is really important. A sense of humor got me through countless bad days. Even when I'm in a prison van, driving up the ramp, going out of Belmarsh. I'm trying to avoid the photographers who are outside because I know how that works. I've run a few of those photos over the years. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I, I'm in a, I mean, I'm in a, in a cell, in a, in a van driving out of Belmarsh. Primary thought in my life, how on earth did I end up here? But I'm also thinking, I really don't want that picture for my kids more than anything else on the front of a newspaper tomorrow. So I'm sort of bending down, trying to work out where the photographers are. Before you know it, you're up and it's a gloriously sunny day. Sun was streaming through the, into, the, into the window. And I noticed that the windows of this prison van were rose tinted. And I just thought to myself, you know, Serco. <laughs> are you know famously rubbish at security but they are absolute bloody masters of irony um and i and i you know i i am not gonna tell you matt that i laughed my way to prison because i absolutely did not i can tell you but i but i found a you know that was a moment right and i and i, and I found myself i found myself smiling about it and i and humor i think is 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 incredibly important are you describing that being in that circo van that is the sort of thing, that's the moment people, you know, they worry about going to prison or whatever. It's most people's worst nightmare is that fear of being in the back of that van. You know, whenever you see them around town, you think, I wonder if there's someone in the back of that and what they've done and where they're going. I that, do every time people, I see one. People's like pits of the stomach sick. It, it, that's most people's fear is being in the back of one of those things. Yeah, well, it's you know, I've I've always been able, and I don't know, and I suspect most people will be the same actually. When you're there, is that you? The other the other thing, you know, that 
understanding what you've got control of that that has several different facets to it right and i and i the most shocking moment was when i was taken down actually and you go down into the cells the, the old bailey it really is like a you know straight out of central casting it's a very long you know sort of victorian corridor with these you know these very old cells that have held you know all manner of notorious prisoners over the years or, or inmates over the years and suddenly you're sat in one that was probably the most kind of oh i can't quite how on earth did this happen moment um but quite quickly i was able to say to myself you know what this is just another place right i'm still breathing I'm still, you know, in the case of the prison van, still able to sort of smile. And this is another place to breathe and smile, albeit a pretty miserable one. Uh, and I, I, sort of st- I sort of carried, I stuck with that thought wherever I went. And I was in Belmarsh for longer than I thought I would be. They told me it would be five days. It ended up being two months. That was a pretty miserable two months. And then I ended up in an open prison in, uh, in Suffolk called Hosley Bay, which is a resettlement prison. And I was able to go to work there. So that was an in- much more interesting day-to-day uh, enterprise because I was working with other prisoners helping them write their CVs doing Dragon's Den kind of presentations for what they would do when they left prison uh, I was an education orderly and it was fascinating actually in its own way um, and uh, and the days passed a lot quicker as a as a result the sort of darkly I'm not even sure if they're comic ironic moments where you know I remember seeing footage of you coming out the old bay getting swamped by the paparazzi you know the the former mm. tabloid boss being yeah. swarmed by the the kind of the tentacles of the tabloid media, ending up in yeah. prison when the papers you'd worked for were were certainly very tough on crime. Did that occur to you in those moments? Oh, the irony was not lost on me at all. Uh, you know, at, at at any point, and you know, I had no. I thought, listen, I was not going to complain about you know, media coverage of the situation. I could see that it was a story. I'd had, I'd had journalists on my door for five years by then, you know, and I never, and I never, it'd be grossly hypocritical for me to have complained about that. And actually, you know, because I know how it works, it was all, it was all pretty civilized. You know, we made a lot of cups of tea and made a lot of sandwiches for journalists during those times. On the day itself, on the day that I was, because you're convicted and then they gave me some time for which I was very grateful to sort of prepare for, you know, for prison. Uh, but on the day I went to prison, which obviously wasn't the best day of my life, I, again, I just didn't want that picture of me trundling along with a suitcase, you know, for the kids more than anything else, because those things last forever. And so I, I live out in the country. So I jumped over the back fence into a field where I'd arranged for a completely bemused local cabbie to be sat with a car. Uh, and uh, and he and he drove me off to the uh, and he drove me off to the station. So I managed. And my view was, you know what? They've got an absolute right to try and get those pictures, uh, and I've got an absolute right to 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 do my best to make sure you don't. It's a bit like the questions in terms of the detail of what happened, right? You know, I, I think people have got an absolute right to ask me those questions, and I've got an absolute right, as I did right at the start of this conversation, to say I've said all I'm going to say. You know, and uh, and that, that's that's how I see it. One thing that you've said is really interesting that, that runs through your podcast and the work you do now is is being strategic in a crisis because when people are hit by a crisis, they spiral out of control. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Their mind it's so hard to think clearly. People panic. Mm. People worry. Mm. So I guess two things. One, what were your primary worries at your darkest moments, either whether that's in prison or, or when you're on trial, fearing for what the future might hold. And secondly, 
what does being strategic in a crisis mean and how do you do it in a moment of blind panic? Well, my biggest, my biggest worry was my family. You know, that was always the, that was every, every decision was anchored around, around, you know, got me then three young, much younger children uh, and Eloise were my primary concerns. And so, you know, on that basis, you know, the worst moment for me, um, the worst moment before 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 prison was when I had a meeting with my lawyers and they told me how I'd, I'd been assured that whatever happened, you know, the court couldn't take our our house away from us, uh, and and that that was a, a massive reassurance. And then there was a day when suddenly the advice changed, and that uh, and that actually it might happen not that it would happen but that it might happen and certainly the prosecution were keen to were keen to do that because they had this totally um uh, uh wrong inaccurate idea that i was you know i was living in a mansion somewhere and uh and and i can assure you i wasn't uh and getting that piece of advice that actually you might need to prepare andy for you know for losing the house because that wasn't about me, right? That was about my that was about my wife and about my children. And that for me felt like that was that's too much. That's too far because they didn't make the mistakes. I made the mistakes. I should say again, right? I, I argued in court and I'll argue always that I didn't break the law, but those mistakes that sort of, you know, that I talk about more broadly, they didn't, you know, my 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 wife did not decide to be, you know, to to be the editor of a of a national newspaper. I made that decision. So I thought that was a that was the worst day because that was, you know, I don't know what we would have done if that had happened. Thank God it didn't, actually. Uh, and then and then in terms of the broader strategic advice, the first thing is exactly as I mentioned earlier, kind of you know realizing what you got control of, being present in the crisis. I think the second thing is is perspective, which we've touched on. It's so important always to be able to say to yourself it could be worse, um, uh, because unless it's very very serious illness it invariably can uh, be worse than the situation you're in i think there's some small practical things there's the um the sort of language of crisis in a way because obviously the jobs that i've done i'm very interested in language and during my sort of years leading up to my trial and during the trial even you know obviously i'm surrounded by headlines that have got crisis words screaming at me you know but even some of my friends in the, with the best of intentions would say to me you know you're in the middle of a firestorm you know how are you going to survive this how are you going to get through this everything kind of elevating the thing in your mind and i think if you're in crisis it's really important both in your own head and if you can with those around you to bring the temperature down wherever you possibly can you're in charge of your own environment and and be in charge of your own environment and and by the time actually i was getting towards the end of my situation i got quite good at that you know i would i would actively stop people from using you know sort of crisis language around me because it doesn't help uh, what any, sort of stuff any, is crisis language what? well you know i, I think if, in the example i gave you you know uh how you know, you're in the middle of a firestorm i'm not in the middle of a firestorm there is no fire around me at all i'm i'm currently not at physical there's no physical threat to me Right, uh, is 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 an example, um, and people, you know, we 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 all have a drama instinct. I think actually we have a 
you know, as, 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 as human beings, we, we love a drama, right? And the inclination is always to kind of accelerate and to amplify that drama if, if we can. And, and it's quite a trick to try and pull it back. And that's advice I often find myself giving clients as well. It's just, it's just, it's just be careful about the words that you're using. Um, and we see it, you know, obviously it's a different challenge in the media because part of the task is to amplify and to make it more exciting. Um, and the other thing really is they, it's just to stay, you know, true to the idea that it will end. All right, and that life might well be different at the other end of it, but you know it will end. I, you know, never by my experience. Um, there was a podcast that I recorded not that long ago with a with a woman called Claire Danson, and Claire was a sort of GB age uh, age category uh, triathlete, um, and she was uh, training actually to uh, she was about to, to 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 have a race at the weekend that would have potentially took her into the sort of professional ranks. So she was a very successful athlete and she was training on a bike and she rode straight into a tractor and was um, spinal cord was, 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 uh, was severed. Uh, thankfully the first person who found her was able to get an air ambulance. Um, and she was, she was taken to hospital, uh, obviously sort of number of different broken bones as well as, as well as a spinal cord being severed. And she told me a story uh, that whilst laying in the hospital bed, this is in the, this is in the uh, very early days after her accident, effectively immediately after her accident, because obviously she was unconscious for a long while. She was with her sister and she was with the doctor. And, uh, and she worked out a system with her sister because she's incredibly close to her sister, who's a very successful, she was, was the, her sister was the captain of the GB uh, uh, hockey team. And they got very close linked and she was able to communicate to, to her sister through blinking her eyes, right? While her sister worked out the system, number of blinks meant a certain letter, wrote out on a chalkboard next to the bed, para-athlete. So she has already identified what her new life is going to be and what she needs to be able to get there. And after writing para-athlete, that they then had a longer conversation through this very tortured means where what she was concerned about actually was her, one of her arms that had been very badly broken. She needed that arm to be repaired properly by the best possible surgeon because she's going to need that hand to push her wheelchair. Now, if that's not being present in your crisis, if that is not being able to identify where your new life is going to be and, and, and you being able to grab that moment as well as you possibly can and also by the way putting aside the self entirely justified self-pity i mean i mean i'm unbelievable so it's, it is moments like that actually in the podcast that you know the real the 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 the, the, the guidance the, the advice that i hope people will get from it that's useful it's not from me. It's very nice of you to say that 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 uh, that it's a that it's a good podcast. I'm grateful for it, but really, it's all about the guests. It's a brilliant podcast, and I think particularly in this last year, it will have been so helpful to people. Oh well, thank you, because that was the intention. It's um, really good. I, I t on podcasts, I've kept you for way way longer than I promised I would, Andy. But it's just been such an engrossing, fascinating conversation. Oh, Alyssa, thanks for having me. I really, I really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. 
Well, there you go. Andy Coulson, definitely worth having Andy on the show for more than an hour. And at risk of repeating something I've noticed myself saying more often, I notice it because people email me when I start having these recurring phrases, is any one area of that interview could have easily been an episode or a series in itself. There's so much to talk to Andy about. Sometimes after these interviews, in fact, nearly always, when I finish recording them, I've been so engrossed in them, I honestly can't immediately recall the things we talked about. I could tell you what the broad areas were. I could tell we talked about the news of the world, Downing Street and the trial and going to prison. But I've been so engrossed in the conversation, I, I can't immediately recall the details of it. And I know that may sound strange. Maybe you have the same experience listening to it. That They're so engrossing that in a way your mind goes blank in the immediate aftermath. And it's only a few days after, maybe about a week later, that you go, oh, that was the, that was the major thing that I take from it. So in the aftermath of that, it's it, it just, it's almost too big. It's almost too big to neatly conclude at the end of the podcast. Well, we talked about that and that sorted then because that was just so broad. And obviously for Andy, he's probably more than any other guest had to do so much personal reflection and talk about that personal reflection and his podcast crisis what crisis deals with that so much and it's a really great listen i've put a link to it in the blurb and in the show notes here because he talks to guests every guest is someone who's been through a crisis and it's a really interesting area to focus on that when people are really tested how do they react and how should they react what do you do when you find yourself often through no fault of your own sometimes through fault of your own in those situations. And, and that really makes it a really interesting listen. And this was just an absolutely incredible listen. So I, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode as I hope you enjoy them all. Do leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. A lot of the platforms now allow you to at least leave a, a star rating. But if you can leave a, a written review on iTunes, I realise after listening to a really long podcast, they are going to now write about it. But if you've enjoyed it, it can be your way of saying thanks. And of course, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. This has been quite long enough. So I'll say goodbye for you now. I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.